0: we still today we dip each bottle by hand in the red wax they've all got the distinctive drip of the individual that dripped them former
1: maker's mark ceo and president bill samuels jr today on now i've heard everything i'm bill thompson Who would have guessed that making bourbon whiskey really is rocket science? Bill Samuels Jr. took over Maker's Mark from his father, Bill Samuels Sr., and turned it into one of the world's most iconic brands. You've undoubtedly seen those distinctive bottles with the red wax seal. That's Maker's Mark. And Bill Samuels Jr. ran the company for many, many years. He retired in 2011, handing over control to his son, Rob. I interviewed Bill Samuels Jr. in 2001.
0: Very few of us especially in uh, rural America, ever get to witness firsthand the creation of an American icon. And uh, I was able to write this book because I can testify with complete honesty that most of the heavy lifting was done before I joined the company. (laughs) And for many years, we were not sure it was going to work. But what my mother and father did, starting back in the 40s, now, we're an old line Kentucky distilling family that made pedestrian whiskey like everybody else did. It was a commodity. And my father got this brilliant idea that we were going to bring connoisseurship and good taste to bourbon whiskey. Everybody laughed. My sisters and I gathered around the table and, and voted him down three to two with mom siding with him because we were afraid he was going to run out of money before we got through college, which scared us to death. <laughs> and he went on. And uh, here it is the year 2001 mm-hmm. Bourbon has gained newfound respect and he was the father of the reinvention and the uh, this newfound respect of the American spirit now was the burning Urban of the history. old family recipe was that just symbolic or was that well, that was symbolic because he was you know he knew he was going pretty far out on a limb uh, he had enough money to retire he was only 40 years old when he uh, started the business uh, and it did not start as a business it started as a hobby as a lot of crazy things do mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he he felt like he had to do the Cortez thing he had to burn the <laughs> burn the ships there was no turning back, and it was so it was so typical of a lot of what went on that I tried to capture in the book. This was this was not a precise march to greatness, uh, and the burning of the recipe had had a problem. It we uh, uh, Dad took the recipe and and a couple other sheets of paper and rolled them up and put some lighter fluid in this bucket. Well, it was a yeast bucket. <laughs> And yeast buckets are small at the top and big at the bottom. And any of, of, of our listeners out there who happen to have been aerospace engineers, like I turned out to be later on, <laughs> recognize that what that is, when you put combustion, is you have a rocket motor. <laughs> and so we st- he dropped the match in this bucket, and up came the flame, and it uh, caught my sister's hair on fire. It caught the drapes on fire in the office. Fortunately, the drapes weren't worth much, but but my sister got very upset. And uh, that was the last ceremony we ever had. <laughs> that was the end of the ceremony. But, it, but this kind of stuff went on all the time to create the taste for, for the whiskey. If you can imagine, because think about... The way Edison did the light bulb, he got mm-hmm. he got to to do a lot of experimentation, oh, and he yes. got instant gratification, or he or he didn't feel good, but at least he knew instantly what was going on. Mm-hmm. With bourbon whiskey, you don't know what you got for six years, so that's uh, and and so you can't do trial and error. You got to get it right the first time. And 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 so what Ed was doing, he was was trying to get in the zone by baking bread, and he baked like hundreds of loaves of bread using different mash bills. And then that great leap of faith, once he found bread he liked, figuring that taste and those characteristics would transfer over to the whiskey, then he went out and bought a distillery. Now, and it happened to be an old historic distillery that was broken down. The good news was it didn't cost much. The bad news was it took a lot of money to fix it back up. (laughs) (laughs) And then he started, he started on this, uh, insane road, uh, and six years later, uh, he had his first batch and that's when mom realized that this hobby needed to be a business because the $60,000 that it took to buy the distillery was nothing, but he had two and a half million dollars tied up in inventory. <laughs> we call it working capital and business, but it wasn't anything working about it. It was, mm-hmm. it was sitting evaporating in the warehouses, <laughs> uh, and, uh. And that's when Mom got busy. She was the more aggressor of the family, and she decided that you couldn't sell it in a paper bag, so she needed to figure out what to call it and how to do it. And, and I've got all those stories in the in the book. She, mm-hmm. she, she came up with the name, didn't she? She did the whole thing. She was a chemist by nature and c- c- collected old English pewter. In fact, was one of the country's foremost authorities on uh, 17th and 18th century English pewter. So Maker's Mark was a natural derivative from from her primary interest. Her secondary interest was collecting uh, 19th century cognac bottles, all of which happened to be sealed in wax. So she got that idea from the French, and being a chemist, she took our little uh, <laughs> uh, deep fryer that mm-hmm. we used to have uh, French fries and took it to the basement cleaned it out we were never to see that again <laughs> and started working on a wax formulation to and we still today we dip each each bottle by hand in the red wax they've all got the distinctive drip of the individual that dripped them so
1: i saw a statistic on the internet the other day that you use something like 133 pounds
0: of wax a year no we would use that in a day <laughs> One hundred and thirty-three thousand pounds oh, in a day. Oh, one thousand pounds. Excuse me. I would no. Yeah, we'd use one hundred and thirty-three pounds before lunch. <laughs> and it's a, think about it. It's only two people dipping, mm-hmm. uh, but we only do one thing, and we've been fortunate that that uh, uh, that we've developed a following around the country, at least in the restaurants, mm-hmm. the fine restaurants, and the bars around the country. But there's a there's a lot of wax just how we got the wax guy in business it's it is so typical this guy was working down eastman kodak in in uh, kingsport tennessee and they were making our wax and dad and i went down it's my first day on the job we go to kingsport it's a horrible drive we go down to kingsport we meet with the guy that's uh, running the eastman plant and he breaks the bad news to us that he was not going to make our wax anymore because we weren't buying enough wax And it was gumming up his mixing equipment, took him a lot of time to clean all the equipment up, and we just weren't worth the business. And my father, being the unconventionalist that he was, wormed his way around, found the guy that was actually doing the work, in conversation, noticed that he was really from southern Indiana and wanted to come back home. He was down there because he was a University of Tennessee graduate. And Dad agreed to buy a mixing pot, set it up in his garage. This is 34 years ago this fellow's son and grandson are now in that business in an expanded garage on the same property, and we couldn't do without them. Oh, but sensible business people don't do that kind of stuff. And and But there's a lot of things your company does that the, quote, sensible business doesn't do. Well, I think it's probably because the focus on business in this country is is on the larger companies. I think the... The, the smaller companies, the partnerships, the, the startups, you've got to be resourceful, you've got to be creative, and you've got to have the passion to overcome the obvious hurdles. And, and that's what I saw. Now, looking at it as a kid, it looked insane. I mean, it looked like stupidity rebirth. To give you an example, uh, when Dad went to try to borrow money, everybody told him nobody cared about it, a new, better bourbon. And the analogy that this one banker used was was not very nice, but he did it. He said, Mr. Samuels, he says, do you like Brussels sprouts? And Dad said, no, I can't stand them. He said, that's the point. Are you going to be interested in a new, better Brussels sprout if somebody invents it? And he said, of course not. He said, that's the problem. Everybody's already decided they don't like bourbon. They've moved off to rum, vodka, white wines, and the like. And he stormed out of the little meeting and uh, and uh, funded the thing by himself. Gee. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it, was, it ended up reinventing bourbon whiskey in the process.
1: Uh, but I was going to say, I mean, to take the analogy a step further, if somebody could reinvent br- Brussels sprouts and make it taste like uh, carrots, make it taste like a sweet
0: apple, people would like Brussels sprouts. Well, and that was exactly what happened here. The problem was we... Anytime you start with the negative idea about what it is somebody's talking to you about, there's so many signals out there Mm -hmm. that you just shut it down. So I get a lot of credit for being probably the worst marketer in the history of the world because it took us, it took me, because that was my job, go find customers. He already knew how to make the whiskey, didn't want me messing around with that. So when I got out of school, it was go find customers. Well, this is really hard trying to convince people that they would like this particular a variety of Brussels sprouts when they've already decided they didn't think they did <laughs> so it it was about 40 years and then just as you say once they try it mm-hmm. we got them and the incredible amount of conversation that comes from wow wee, this bourbon is really good mm-hmm. they start telling people so now i'm a marketing genius and it didn't do anything now would there come a day
1: when some future you know somewhere down the line
0: somebody else would burn the recipe and decide to start all over again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Taste change. Uh, there's nothing better than invention. Uh, in our industry, and in our type of product, since it is word of mouth, it, it really takes a long time for the word out. Uh, but there is no one definition of what's better and what's... Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that would not surprise me.
1: Bill Samuels of Maker's Mark. Today on Now I've Heard Everything. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, this one kind of hit me hard. Jim Lehrer, the former co-anchor of PBS's McNeil Lehrer Report, died last week at age 85. I met and interviewed Jim almost a dozen times over a number of years for books that he had written. Always a sweet, very gentle man, very kind Always a kind word for others. And in the interview you'll hear next time on Now I've Heard Everything, our 1992 conversation about a memoir that Jim Lehrer had written and the stories he tells, especially a story about 1963, Dallas, November. Oh, it'll send a chill down your spine. Jim Lehrer, next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.